Thanks for listening to a little more conversation. I'm Ben O'Hara Byrne. Tonight we hear from a now retired Vancouver police constable about how he became Canada's first ever full-time bike theft detective and what changes and what difference he made. An expert in plain language weighs in on whether or not conservative leadership candidate Pierre Polyev's idea for a lot and overly bureaucratic language in federal government communication is actually a good idea. We'll find out on Monday who will replace Boris Johnson as leader of the UK Conservative Party and as the country's next Prime Minister. Foreign Secretary Liz Truss appears set to win. We speak with the former Canadian High Commissioner to the UK about the many challenges the new PM will face. But first, as we head into what would normally be a busy long weekend for cross-border travel, there are still far fewer Americans driving across the border into Canada than prior to the pandemic. What's keeping them away? How much of a factor is the Arrive Can app and long waits at the border? Well, orcas have no problems crossing the border here. It's not too far from where I am. But drivers seem to, especially American drivers. You know, the last long weekend of the summer is usually a busy time for cross-border travel. But the Canada Border Services Agency has even issued a warning this year about delays and long border crossing wait times. They're offering advice on how to prepare. But fewer Americans are making the journey this year by car. That despite the fact that the dollar is worth about $1.30 Canadian, so the exchange rate is good. StatsCan reports the number of road trips Americans made to this country over the past two months was down 45% compared to the same period back in 2019. So what's keeping them away? Probably a variety of reasons. Maybe it's inflation, high gas prices, and so on. But how much is the Arrive Can app part of the problem? Joining me now is Laurie Troutman. She's director of the Border Policy Research Institute at Western Washington University in Bellingham, Washington. Thanks for your time tonight. Thanks for having me. So I guess it's really not our imagination. There are fewer Americans specifically, but I think Canadians too, making that uh, making that cross-border trip these days. Yeah, the numbers have remained at around 50% of pre-pandemic volume. So we saw an uptick after Canada removed the testing requirement back in April. And um, it's climbed since then, but it really hasn't gone much higher than about half what it used to be. Which is because I was looking at a lot of the factors that usually play into this. So for instance, the exchange rate is still very good if you're American. Um, and yet that hasn't seemed to, made, to have made a difference this summer. Yeah, you know, typically we had seen a pretty close relationship between the exchange rate and the volume of crossers. But I think we're in this new environment where that relationship and the value of the Canadian dollar especially is is not playing as prominent of a role in people's decision to cross the border. Why do you think that would be? I mean, obviously, in this country, we talk a lot about some of the issues, some of the things that we put in place, such as, you know, vaccine requirements, which obviously work both ways, but also our Arrive Can app, which can be another a barrier. A lot of has made a lot has been made about that. Uh, how do you see it? I see it as a, a couple different things. Um, I think we need to remember that we still have border restrictions. You know, we we didn't sort of remove the restrictions and revert to the same sorts of requirements that we had before the pandemic. As you mentioned, um, Canadians and Americans crossing in either direction still have to be vaccinated. There's a fair number of Americans that aren't vaccinated. So those people obviously aren't going to be able to travel to Canada. Um, The Arrive Can app, which has received a lot of attention uh, for several months now, is still pretty problematic. And it's problematic for a couple of reasons. One is 
because, you know, while it may be pretty well known in Canada, it is not well known in the United States because there's no real sort of public outreach effort around ArriveCan in the U.S. So I live in Bellingham, you know, about 30 kilometers from the border. And I run into friends and neighbors all the time who said, oh, you know, I'm going to go to Canada this weekend. I'm really excited. I haven't been there in a while. And I always say, have you filled out your ArriveCan? And, and most of the time they look at me and they say, ArriveCan, what is that? Um, so they're really not used to, to using it. They're not aware of it. And, you know, I think once you're used to it, it works, but, but there's still some challenges around it as well. Yeah. I, I'm surprised in some ways because, you know, cross-border traffic is the lifeblood of many communities right on the border. And, and you're right. We really haven't done, and there is no equivalent in the U.S. right now. So we haven't done, Canadians haven't done a lot of good outreach to try to explain that th- how this thing works. Yeah, and I think that's been a real challenge emerging from the pandemic is Canada has their requirements, the U.S. has their, and there is no single place where a traveler who's crossing the border in both directions can go and find the information about what is required in both directions because each government sort of, you know, sticks to their own. Um, It must be having an impact. I mean, I know you're right on the border. Um, It must be having an impact on, on those communities that rely on this kind of traffic. And we're certainly hoping that it would come back quite quickly once a lot of these restrictions started to get lifted. Yeah, I mean, I think there's a bit of a relief just coming out of, of where we've been that, oh, at least, you know, the border is, is open again and people can cross. But something we saw, which I think was quite surprising in, in Whatcom County on the southern side of the border there is certain industries and locations like Blaine or Sumas or Linden that were next to the border were, were certainly hit hard. And certain businesses like the mail order services that a lot of Canadians take advantage of where they order order things online and pick up their goods and bring them home, those really suffered. But if you look at the county overall, we saw an interesting trend where there was a lot more domestic tourism and, and also just domestic consumer spending. So for example, there was a big fear at the beginning of the border restrictions that uh, the sales tax base of of the county or of Bellingham would just be decimated by the lack of Canadians. And that really didn't happen. We saw it a little bit in certain categories where we know Canadians shop, but in a way that the domestic spending and the domestic tourism um, sort of made up for some of that. So, so it's not quite as bad as I think we anticipated it might be. And that's interesting because we're seeing the same thing in Canada. A lot of people are just staying home. I guess what's happened through the pandemic, and and this goes back a while now. Uh, I think sort of nine eleven would be the would be the starting point. I would think um, that the border has become a more difficult thing to factor in to a day trip, for instance, or a spontaneous journey, for instance. Is now you really do have to take crossing the border into consideration in a way that perhaps, you know, people 30, 40 years ago could never even have imagined, but even 20 years ago might have had difficulty picturing. Yeah. And I think you could say that even two and a half years ago as well. Um, You know, we were coming out of the border restrictions in a new environment. And that doesn't just mean that there's new requirements. It also means that that the wait times and the volumes are sort of unpredictable. And so we've certainly seen that at our land border crossings between Western British Columbia and Western Washington state, where I've driven up on a Monday afternoon and there's been a two hour wait time, which was very strange um, and very unpredictable. So it makes, like you said, planning for that cross border travel really difficult. Because I imagine, and this is just anecdotal from my own experience, but a lot of that 
cross-border traffic that happens is done relatively spontaneously. It's not, it doesn't involve a huge amount of planning. It's basically, let's go to Canada this weekend. You know, why not? Let's try. And then you start to see some of the, some of the, the, the cons to making that journey. And perhaps you say, well, why don't we just stay, why don't we just stay in Washington state or stay in New York state or stay closer to home? Yeah, absolutely. And I think that's the unknown. Um, you know, it's really easy to say ArriveCan is a simple app. You download it, you submit your information. And that's true. But if you don't actually know what's required of you, it can feel like kind of a hurdle to submit that information. And so I think anything that makes it more difficult to cross the border um, in, in the scholarly world, we say anything that thickens the border um, really does deter a lot of people from crossing, especially the ones that maybe weren't crossing often. You know, the people that have family, the people that have second homes, the people that are really keen to save some money on their gas and their dairy, those are the people that are still going across. But I think it's the people that had crossed less less before that are now sort of saying, eh, yeah, it's not worth it. Do you think this is something, I mean, we saw this trend, I remember after 9-11, a lot fewer, far fewer Canadians crossed the border uh, to do sort of Day, day shopping, that kind of stuff. I think we saw a bit of it the other way too. The thickening of the border, as you called it, we're seeing it again. Uh, do you think this may lead to sort of a permanent change in how people view those sort of what used to be a very easy journey back and forth across that border? Yeah, I mean, this is sort of the million dollar question that I'll be spending a lot of my time in the coming years uh, looking at, because on one hand, I, I sort of feel like, well, I do think people will start crossing again. Um, but on the other hand, if, if you look at the data, like you said, after 9-11, the volumes across the board of cross-border travel between the U.S. and Canada at the land borders has actually continued to decline over the last 20 years. So we are much lower volumes than we were 20 years ago. Now, one thing I would say to that is, is our region is actually an exception. We actually right. do have numbers that are just a bit higher than they were prior to 9-11. And so there's a couple of reasons for that. I think population growth certainly plays a role. I think we have really good cross-border networks in our region. You know, we were the, the birth of the Nexus Trusted Traveler programs and the Enhanced Driver's License. So there is a lot of work dedicated to fostering that cross-border collaboration and the movement across the border, which I think does make a difference. And certainly one of the few areas where two really big cities, Seattle and Vancouver, are so close together, right? Yes, absolutely. And and we're seeing a lot more connection between Seattle and Vancouver with Microsoft and Amazon and other companies really straddling the border and having an increasing number of employees in both Vancouver and Seattle. Are there ways, do you think, that uh, both sides, both the American and Canadian governments, and I'm sure both provincial and state governments and the federal governments on both sides of the border are talking about this, are there things that could be done to try to make that uh, to try to bring back some of that travel to try to ease those concerns from uh, specifically from those wanting to drive across for a day trip or a weekend for instance yeah i think there's a lot of things i mean we could look at at actual border management policies that might make sort of a more seamless cross-border system possible um, there will be, I believe, a pilot project in our region using an e-gate where you can scan your Nexus card and the gate opens um, and you only talk to an officer in the booth if that if there's sort of an, a reason to. So there's lots of technical kind of tech oriented policies we could put in at the border that would make it smoother. But I honestly think equally as important to that is the communication and the relationships between 
people and government and sort of networks of cross-border collaboration. The more we talk to each other, the more we collaborate, I think the smoother or perhaps the thinner that border can become. Is there any impact of just the overall conversation in America about borders, period, specifically the southern border? Has that had an impact at all on how Americans view the northern border? Yeah, that's an interesting question, because in some ways, um, I think the Canadian border is, is a bit immune from the politics of the Mexican border, because the same challenges just aren't there. So there is a really different relationship between the countries, and that does play out at the border. But at the same time, um, you know, the U.S. tends to do the same thing on its southern border that it does on the northern border. So to a certain extent, you know, the border restrictions between the U.S. and Canada really were very similar to the border restrictions between the U.S. and Mexico. So um, I think it's a pretty complicated dynamic that often gets really tied up in politics, which is unfortunate for you know, those of us who live in the borderland communities. Yeah, because, I mean, clearly we like each other, right? We're neighbors. We've been good neighbors for a very long time. It would be a shame to see people not be able to take advantage of just learning about each other because they're worried about crossing the border. Absolutely. And I think of it as sort of a a form of soft diplomacy. Um, The more we visit each other's communities, shop in each other's stores, um, maybe you have kids or grandkids or a spouse on the other side, that really does make kind of a social fabric that spans the border. And, and I think it's um, it's really important to have good relations with your neighbors. So what will you be looking for in the coming year or so as far as, uh, you know, stats or, or trends that will really be of interest to you? Yeah, well, certainly, um, certainly the volumes. Um, we'll be very interested to see what happens with ArriveCAN. I think there is a potential to turn that into a tool that can facilitate cross-border travel. But if it remains a mandated requirement, I do think it will suppress travel. So we'll be watching what happens with that. Um, There's a possibility that the U.S. could take a similar approach that allows people to submit their information in advance, and maybe that enables them to move through the border more quickly. I think that would be optional, though. I don't think that would be mandatory. So I I guess I'd say um, coming out of this kind of crisis, there is an opportunity to do better at the border. So I'll be looking to see what the governments are able to to put in place, and hopefully they're able to do that collaboratively. And certainly, I I gather just from what you're saying, we need to do some outreach. If we're going to keep ArriveCAN in place, we're going to need to do some outreach in border communities to explain how it works and why people shouldn't be afraid of it. Yes. And and it needs to be fine-tuned because right now, if you're an American taking a day trip across the border into Canada, you still have to put in the place where you're going to quarantine. And if you're just you know, coming up to Vancouver to go to dinner and go home, that information doesn't exist. So, so the app really needs to, to listen to people on the ground and, and be updated and revised accordingly. Lori Trevin, thank you so much. You're welcome. I've been looking forward to this interview for a while. Bike theft is one of those omnipresent crimes, especially in big cities, that lives in kind of a gray area between absolutely unacceptable and such an annoyance and kind of a fact of life. Uh, Here's the odd thing, though. Take Vancouver. On average, about 2,000 bikes are reported stolen every year, according to the statistics. Uh, But police also recover about 2,000 bikes, many of which will not be returned to their owners because the serial numbers are not reported to police. So they end up in storage, they end up being auctioned off, and so on. Well, both the number of bikes reported stolen 
and the number of bikes returned to their owners has improved in recent years. And it's in no small part thanks to an initiative launched with the help of a man who was once Canada's only full-time bike cop. He's now retired, but the groundwork he laid lives on in Vancouver. And joining me now is retired Vancouver Police Constable Rob Brunt, still Canada's first full-time bike detective, if no longer perhaps the only one. I'm not sure of that. Welcome to the show. Thanks for your time. Thanks for having me, Ben. I appreciate it. It's such a fascinating story because I didn't realize there weren't, come to think of it, it, it makes sense, but there weren't any dedicated bike theft police officers at any individual police station. Uh, how did yours come about? How did you pitch that as, as an idea and, and why was it taken up? Uh, well, so it's quite a long story, but I'll try to make right. it short for your <laughs> listeners. But um, so in 2015, I, like for I, I was at uh, 2015, I'd been like a member with DPD for 25 years, but wow. uh, but on the street the whole time. So worked mm-hmm. in the downtown east side, mostly like the downtown core. Right. But but for years. Um, I, I, you know, I moved from, I, I went to school in Edmonton and I, luckily, fortunately, um, I got to work in VPD cause it's my, my dream city to work in, you know, my dream job. But, um, but for 25 years, I'd been working with, you know, people on the street. I call them my work family. Right. So as a cyclist, I grew up as a cyclist as a little kid and my family were immigrants. So, you know, you got a second or third or fourth hand bike. And so, you know, you realize how important it is for school and for work and all that. But, you know, when I worked in DPD, I'd you know, downtown east side and I'd run into my work family and I'd be like, Billy, like, as a, so Billy's riding a bike. And as a cyclist, I'd be like, man, Billy's riding like a bike, like a $5,000 bike. I like, I can't afford it. And I, and I, and I know Billy, I see him probably more than my regular family. Like you, right. like when you walk the beat and you ride, you know. And so I'd be like, Billy, where'd you get that bike? And he'd be like, Frank gave it to me. I'd be like, Frank didn't give it to you. Frank's been in jail for for six months. Why? Well, so you know, you know all the stories exactly. Yeah, yeah, all uh, the stories, all the like, all all the but 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 all the grounds we need to seize the bike, right? It's found, it's stolen, like all those things. But um, I'd run it on the Canadian police, like CPEC, the Canadian mm-hmm. Police Information Computer, and so it's kind of like winning the lottery, but. You know, if you type in a zero and it's an O, it doesn't come back. If you type in a one, it's an L. Or the worst thing is, is so bicycle is the only form of transportation uh, in Canada that doesn't have a VIN on it. So there's no right. regulations. So the worst bike I ever flipped over had five sets of digits. And so you're like, <laughs> you know. <laughs> Which one's like, to enter? Yeah. Yes. And so you run one and you're like, and, you know, dispatch comes back and you're like, well, you know, Detective Brunt, we've got a hit on that. I'd be like, oh, thank goodness. I won the 649. And they'd be like, yeah, but not only did we get hit on it, we got 6,000 hits. And you're like, ah, factory number. <laughs> right? So it came uh-huh. from China or Japan right. or, you know, wherever the bike was made. And you're like, man. So fast forward, you know, 25 years. And I'd seized probably 1,000 bikes by that time. And wow. so I, I got to go to the Vancouver, the city of, well, actually it's city of Vancouver property office. And so it's like in the movies, right? You always see the cage, you know, everybody's yeah. going to go get evidence and you stand and it's the fence and nobody, you know, I, I, I kind of think of it as like the wizard of Oz. Nobody gets to see right. the wizard. Well, so 25 years in, I got to see the wizard. I got to go behind 
for for an unrelated thing, but they had this machine. I think it holds about 500 bikes. It goes up about 200, sorry, two and a half stories, and it holds about 500 bicycles on it. And 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 that thing was full. And, and these were like, all bikes that had been recovered, like all bikes that had yep, been stolen and recovered. Yeah, wow. Yep. So the cops do a great job. And so that was full, and there was like 200 on the ground. And so the property office guy, I'm like, <laughs> hey, man, like, whose job is it to get this these bikes back? Because, like, you know, they're not doing a great job. <laughs> like, <laughs> there's a lot of bikes. That's a lot of bikes. That's a lot of bikes. Yeah. And then, so again, the cyclist in me looks up and goes, ooh, you know, there's a Norco Optic 9.2. I'm like, it's going to go to Yeah, yeah. These aren't just yeah. like it's not like Amsterdam. These aren't all the sort of like clunkers. These are a lot of really nice bikes yeah. in Vancouver. Needless to say, absolutely. So I'm like, man, I'd like to buy that bike. And but then the cop in me goes, man, I probably seized that bike. So I wrote, I did all the paperwork. I went through all the steps, um, and now it's going to auction. And so I feel I felt like I was like a football player. I carried the ball to the one yard line. I'm about to cross and to get a goal, and I fumbled it. Right, and so and someone else buys your Norco. <laughs> yep. Yeah. yeah, yeah, exactly. Yep. And so I said, Did you know, I said to the property office guy, I'm like, you know, whose job is it to get these back? And he's like, well, it's the cop on the street. He goes, we we hold them. He goes, look, Rob, look at the amount of inventory of property here. And he goes, bikes are just a small part of it, but I've got to run this. And he goes, it's you know, and and he's not being. You know, I'm going to say it, but he's not being like mean or anything, but he's like, it's not my circus, not my monkey. Like, it's just right. so overwhelming for him. And I'm like, man, like we, you know, we should do something as an organization. You know, we, we do all this paperwork. We do all this. Be, you know, there's no, there's no Honda Civic sitting in the back of the property office, <laughs> you know, whether, whether it's a thousand dollar car or a $10,000 car or whatever the price is that we know who motorcycles, you know, anything that comes in, if, even, you know, I mean, I'm not being realistic. If you wheeled the plane into the back of the place, we know who owns it. Right. right. But not bikes. Skidoo, not bikes. So not I'm bikes. Like, so I'm like, you know, we should do something in Vancouver. It, it should be very simple in this day and age to, to, you know, make a website or anything like that. And so, you know, then that's, one of the things about, and you know, you know, I'm retired, so it doesn't help. You know, I'm not trying to get promoted, and I'm not no, trying to no. shine anybody yes. on. But the chief we have right now, top chief I had like 30 years, top chief I ever had. Walk into the boss, go, hey, uh, you, Adam, we, you know, we got a problem. We need to fix this. I'm like, you should hire somebody in IT to write like a little bit of software, you know, web page. He's like, really, Rob? Like, like this is what we could solve. And he's like, yep, I'm listening. He goes, how much you think it's cost? I'm like, you know, sorry, chief, I'm a beat cop. I don't know like how much a website is or an app. I'm guessing eighty thousand dollars. And so the chief goes, mm, yep, you got a good point, Rob. You know, we're working hard. It's a lot of money. We could return. We can do a better job at this. It's your job. And I'm like, whoa, whoa, whoa. <laughs> wow, you just got promoted. <laughs> you just, yeah. it, it's, it's always fun when, you're, when, when your wish comes true that you got to do all the work. Right? Yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah, I was just wishing it was somebody else, right? <laughs> and so I'm like, chief, I'm, I'm a street cop. He's like, no, Rob, like, you know what you're doing. You know what you're talking about. I, like, I believe in you. And so, you know, you know like for any organization, you got to, you know, even your, you know, in what you do, for the top guy to go, 
I think you can do it. I believe in you and go do it. That's amazing. Right. And, you know, it is. Yeah. So it is. So now, now I'm proud because the chief's like, I believe in you. And I'm like, there's no way on earth I'm going to fail them. Um, so, but I'm like, I'm not going to reinvent the wheel. Right. No pun intended. Somebody, (laughs) yes, yes, exactly. Somebody in Canada is doing this. And so it's my first desk job. So I'm like, woohoo, I got a desk job. It's not out in the rain. I'm not working shift work. Right. I'm, I can have a coffee break, a lunch break, like patrol officers don't get that, like that luxury. And I'm like, man, this is amazing. So I'm going to have a workout even. Like, you know, it's, that's, you know, but you have, anyway, but, but so. you've got some pressure on you though, because you, you need to come oh. up with, uh, with, with, with an idea to make sure that a lot of, more of these bikes are being returned uh, to their rightful owners. We're speaking with retired Vancouver Police Constable Rob Brunt, who went from 25 years of beat cop uh, in downtown Vancouver in the downtown east side to become Canada's first full-time bike detective. Um, he's uh, telling us how that happened. He explained how he went into the chief's office and had noticed how many bikes had been recovered but never returned to their rightful owners and thought, there must be something we can do about this. And that's where we left the story off. Um, I know that you found some inspiration in the U.S. from a not unfamiliar, someone who invented a not unfamiliar video game system, apparently. <laughs> yes, yes. So, so um, as I'm as I'm digging across Canada, I can't find anybody doing anything with bike theft. I start to look in the United States, and and you know I'm you know I'm two weeks in, and I'm starting to get a little bit worried. And um, so, uh, just total fluke, um, I reached out to uh, an agency, the San Francisco Police Department. And so they had run into this guy and they, they're like, uh, and, and I, I talked to them and I'm like, what are you doing? And they're like, nothing. Um, we've got this going on. And so hang up the call. But two weeks later, they phone me back and they're like, hey, Rob, we just ran into this guy who's an ex-Microsoft guy. And he's got this app called 5 to 9 Garage. So I'm literally got the phone on my shoulder and, I'm, you know, I'm da- I download the app and I'm like, holy smokes, like, it, it allows, this is it. it, it this is it. Yeah. <laughs> like, this is amazing. Um, you know, it, you can download it to register your bicycle. Anybody can use it. Um, the police, like you can print off a police report. You can police, you can uh, print, print off an insurance report. Um, it sends out a message like an Amber alert if your bike gets stolen. So I'm reading this like, and just loading the app. I'm like, this holy cow like this is this is amazing so then i'm like who's the dude and they're like his name's jay allard so i'm like how do you you know jay as in james or j j y and they're like no just a jay allard so like i'm sitting in front of my computer on my police desk and i'm like jay allard google him i'm like whoa he's not he he's not just a microsoft guy he's the inventor of xbox He's wow. <laughs> the only person above him when he worked for Microsoft with Gates, Bill Gates. And I'm like, right. and they're like, they're like, um, Rob, he's looking for somebody to beta test his software. Can we give him your phone number? I'm like, you could give him my home address, my blood type, <laughs> like my next to This is not so some like, guy in IT. This is not some guy in like, IT writing a few lines of code, right? This is, yeah, this yeah, is the big, yeah. Yeah, this is the whole, the whole like, enchilada. Yeah. Absolutely. So, um, so um, they're like, okay. So the you know two days later, I get a phone call from the Xbox inventor, and you know he talks like a regular dude, and he's like, um, 
you know, I'm, I'm based in Portland. Um, I'm looking for a beta city to test the software. Um, can you meet me in, uh, in, in you know, I, can you meet me in halfway in Seattle? I'm like, yeah, absolutely. So, um, <laughs> so I drive down, I tell the chief I'm going down to Seattle to meet this guy. And so, um, uh, I, I, this part, I, I, you know, I don't mind telling the story all the time. So we're meeting in a microbrewery. So I'm like, right. what are you going to, what are you going to dress to meet the Microsoft inventor? So I'm like, man, I'm just not a suit guy, but I'm like, okay. Uh, and I'm going to wear, I'm going to wear my dress shirt, my dress jeans and my dress shoes. And so right. Jay walks Does he in, show up in sweats? Does he show up in sweats? Yep. Yeah. Yeah. He's got a baseball cap. Uh, skater yeah. sk- skater shoes and all that and so he is just down to earth he's pulled up in like a regular car like i'm thinking like what you, you, like he's got a he's got a used vehicle just and w- our meeting's supposed to be an hour long and we sit there and chit chat about bike theft for four hours and his story is yep his story is when they work for Xbox, they worked, and I believe it, they worked like nonstop, no days off uh, for like almost two years to get the prototype out for Xbox. And then they were like, okay, been there, done that kind of thing. It's good to go. And we need some work-life balance. And so they create this bike team called five. They rode from five to nine at night. And so they right. called it project five to nine. So, and tell so me, I have to fast forward yeah. you a bit here. We're going to run it. Yeah, we're yeah. not going to get to the to the punchline. So you you managed to institute this in Vancouver, right? This is this is the end of this. Is that this actually comes into place where people can register their bikes? Yeah. So anybody can download the app. It's free. And so what we did in Vancouver was the everything about it is free. But we we have the one thing is like you can add this um, tamper proof sticker to your bicycle kind of like an ADT, ADT symbol for your bike. Right. And it has seven digits on it, like a license plate. But the big thing for me in policing was we know your bike's registered. We know you exist on a registration system. So now when we stop the thief with your bicycle, we can run it. Um, we can't see your personal information because Jay's about personal space and, and right. respecting that. But we can see your email. So I run your bicycle. It says... You know, uh, you know, it's, you know, it's five, you download, download the app, take five pictures of your bicycle, side of your bike, you with the bike, serial number, if you can find it or uh, like even get it, um, you can add the shield number and then the front of your bike, what's unique on your bicycle. So now when the cops stop somebody with the bike, we can see all that information. And so now we go, well, <laughs> this bike belongs to Mr. Smith. Mr. Right. You're not, Hey, Bobby, you're not Mr. Smith. <laughs> right. And exactly. so, yeah. And so it gives us the ability to, to, to see that the bike was stolen or even if it's not stolen, we can see it's not related to the person. So driving it. So even if it wasn't reported stolen, how much did, yeah. I mean, how much did a difference, how much of a difference did it make in the short term, just first in getting bikes back well, to their owners and in, in, in sort of dropping bike theft. So, some quick stats. So when Jay came to Vancouver and met with the chief, he's like, chief, we're going to register 10,000 bikes in three years. And I'm like, dude, he's like, don't make promises. I got to work here. If we don't do that, we did, we did 10,000 bikes in five months, wow. like registered. We, we had lineups the, from the first week we did this. So um, yeah, just amazing. 
within a year, we knocked our bike theft down by 30%. Within three years, we went down 42%. So last year alone, and we're just using really minimal numbers. Last year alone, the reduction in bike theft where we were going from 2015 to now would have been $3.5 million in bike theft just last year alone. If a bike, if we say the average bike was worth $800 and then that's not even including like reduction in bike or police time. So you think every call we go to, it, it reduced our bike, you know, it reduced our call time. Like it helps everything. Incredible. I only have about a minute left, Rob. Did, is someone replaced you? I mean, this is oh, this is ongoing, right? You set this up and it's it's rolling, so to speak. Yeah, absolutely. So it's still it's still full bore. Um, I know the chief is working on. You know, there's they're the, the, you know they're obviously suffering from um, lack of um, manpower right now. People applying and all that. But I know the like I I literally walked into the chief's office when I was retiring, and he's like, "This is a priority." Um, so oh, they're gonna they're gonna replace me for sure, but um, yeah, the well, the, Rob, the program's I'm, I'm still so going. Glad, I'm so glad. I, I'm so glad after 25 years doing something else that you took this on and it all worked out. That's uh, and thanks so much for explaining how it did. And uh, I gather other cities will be looking at what you did as well to to copy. I imagine uh, retired Vancouver Police Constable Rob Runt. Thanks so much for your time on this Friday night before a long weekend. Ah, thanks for having me, Ben. I super appreciate it. You're, you are the reason that we're successful. The media has helped us so much. Um, I, I'm, we're super thankful. Great. Rob, have a great weekend. Thank you. You too. Bye. Well, uh, voting is into the final days for the race to become the next leader of the Conservative Party of Canada, leader of the official opposition, of course. The winner will be announced a week from tomorrow. The frontrunner, of course, is believed to be Pierre Polyev. He has run a disciplined campaign focusing on some core themes, such as affordability, getting rid of so-called gatekeepers, uh, and the sometimes hard-to-define notion of making Canada freer. It's resonated, though. Obviously, he's been drawing some large crowds for his events right across the country, including out here in B.C. His latest pitch, of, or perhaps his last pitch of the campaign, uh, targets language, though, and specifically what he calls the overuse of overly complicated bureaucratic wording in government. So he's saying if elected prime minister, he would pass a law to mandate the use of so-called plain language within the federal government, meaning uh, not only the fewest and simplest words needed, to state information, but also require legal drafters to write laws as simply as possible. Here's a snippet of a video explaining all this that he posted to social media yesterday. Simple, and as simple as possible, but no simpler, should be our goal when we provide you with government documentation. That is the purpose of the Plain Language Act. And it is the act that I will introduce and pass so that you can understand and deal with all of this government paperwork more easily. Uh, Pierre Polyev there with uh, a classical music background to that uh, to that video, but more or less explaining what it is that he's talking about. Now, this is not without precedent. Uh, the U.S. passed something called the Plain Writing Act in 2010. Uh, New Zealand's looking into adopting a plain language bill as well that's somewhat similar to what he's describing. So is it reasonable? Is it good policy? How do you enforce it? And is it even needed? Joining me now is someone who knows. Cheryl Stevens is a writing coach. He's also author of Plain Language in Plain English. Uh, the title says it all. Thanks so much for your time on this Friday night. I'm happy to be here. 
So, uh, you know, I, I obviously read a lot of government documents, press releases in particular. I honestly found it's gotten better over the last little while. It's actually a little more clear than it used to be. And I'm wondering how much of a problem bureaucraties, quote unquote, still is these days, do you think? Well, it is a problem to people uh, in Canada because half the population doesn't really have functional language skills. So when you're writing something that affects their daily lives, that's important for them to understand so they can act on it and solve some problem they have, it's not plain enough. But there has been improvement. You know, the the government some 30 years ago started uh, putting money into and establishing bodies to uh, promote plain language. Uh, We used to have a three-day training for all federal civil servants across the country. And there was, there's annual training. I've delivered annual training to some of the agencies of the Canadian government. So, it, you know, it's on people's tongues, and there's a lot of uh, front-level or lower-level staff across the country who've been trained in 30 years. However, there's also a lot of them, those who have retired in the last 30 years. So um, there is change. It is better. But it's also, there's generally more of an expectation in the public in Canada and elsewhere that that information will be understandable. Right. Especially with social media, I gather, because a lot of government agencies are obviously turning to social media as well, where the clarity has to be there. Um, and, and you're right, you have to teach this stuff. You can't just mandate it and say, you need to, this needs to be clearer. You actually have to educate people on how to write in a more clear, in a clearer fashion, so to speak. Um, what are some? I mean, what do you make of this of this idea then? Because I know, as you pointed out, you we, we chatted about this on email. There is a U.S. equivalent, a plain writing act. I don't know how successful it's been. New Zealand apparently looking at something similar. What do you make of an idea of actually enacting a law to make this happen? Well, everybody's been you know advocating that and trying it in certain countries. You know, besides the U.S., they do have such a law. But the problem is that a laws no better than a communication policy if you don't enforce it, if you don't make people accountable and you don't uh, train them. And, uh, you know, Paula Vare says he's going to have a snitch line. Well, that's no way to enforce uh, a law or a staff expectation. So uh, you have to do that, and that means putting money into it. And who was it who cut back the money that was going to the National Literacy Secretariat and to the libraries that promoted plain language materials and training? It was Harper, and Paul Revere right. was in his cabinet, you know. So they've eliminated whatever progress, uh, you know, had been made. The money's cut off. And when the liberals came back, and I was hopeful they were going to, you know, pick those things up and deal with them. But they've had their hands full, and uh, I still hope that uh, more will come of it. Yeah, you make an excellent point, I guess, because you can't, uh, having worked in communications myself and in journalism mm-hmm. and so on, you can't just mandate it, right? You can't just say, this needs to be clearer. Again, you need you need to teach people how to write in a clear way because people tend to fall into these, and I'm sure you know this from having taught uh, you know, a myriad of bureaucrats how to write or how to write better, um, that they fall into these traps of language that's very common amongst each other because lingo does help within its environment. People understand what they're saying to each other. They just can't communicate to the public that way. And, uh, and, and they need people like either like you to go in and say, okay, here's how you take this and put it into plain language. Yeah. And one of the issues about having some word that's you know commonly used in a particular industry or field is if some of your readers need to hear that word, that's fine, but you should explain it or provide a simpler alternative in the text you're writing. Um, and, and that's easy to do. It's all 
in my opinion, and I've worked with lawyers for that many years as well, and it's all a matter of attitude. If somebody wants to be understood clearly and doesn't feel concerned for their client or their public, they just, you know, they just spew out words. If you really want to get a message across, you stop and think about who the people are, what they need to know, how you should address them, you know, what's the best way to reach them. And uh, that, that's what you need to do, have the right attitude, you need to have the training. Now, I've trained um, civil servants who said to me, yeah, this is all nice and fine. They gave us a day to come here and learn this. But if we write like this, our manager will reject it. And they, right. you know, the managers are the ones, you know, putting a lid on things. And um, they're fearful. They're fearful that the people below them are going to reject it and everybody's going to have to do the work all over. So that's why you have to have leadership from the top and not and not lip service, you know, not just, well, there's a law. Why aren't we? Uh, why isn't it happening? You know, that doesn't why work. Are we in, yeah. One of the things I found interesting, I guess, was a Federation of Independent Business study that found about 80 percent would like to see wording and regulations and guidance simplified. And that made a lot more sense to me than, say, just overall government communication, that really when people are trying to figure out how to apply for something or how to uh, meet certain uh, requirements or standards that um, that that text has to be simple and easy to follow. And also, there was a mention from from Pierre Polyev about about legal drafts as well. That strikes me as being more difficult because then you're crossing between that idea of technical and that idea of simple. And I don't know how difficult that is. You, you would know. Yeah, you can cross it easily. It's it's quite possible to produce plain language laws. And the and the philosophy there is that people are not free of the enforcement of law just because they don't understand it. You know, ignorance of the law is no excuse, but it's also no excuse for the government to leave people ignorant of the law. And, I, you know, years ago I worked with a, a division of the Department of Justice in Ottawa whose goal, whose aim and purpose was to make sure the public understood new laws that were coming in so they could obey them. So, so a lot of this work, and you pointed this out, a lot of this work is already being done. It just does, there's no there's no law in place for it, right? I mean, <laughs> you've said that this that people are already fully aware that this needs to be done. Um, do you, if there was a law, how would mm-hmm. you enforce it? Well, what they do, um, what they do in the U.S. is get the departments to report annually on what progress they made in in training and in rewriting the existing documents as well as training people who write new documents. But I can tell you that when Sheila Fraser was Auditor General here, it was her duty to enforce the communications policy. She didn't have to have a law. So every year when they audited each government department, they would also look into whether they'd done any training in plain language, whether they'd gotten through the revision of any of their documents, and it would be reported to Parliament, you know. Um, And it was embarrassing to departments if they hadn't done. And in the States now, there's actually a private group, uh, um, the Center for Plain Language, and annually they put out a report card on each government department. They look at what they've accomplished and say they got an A or a B or an F. And if you get an F, there'll be publicity, and you better straighten your department up the next year, you know. Um, There's ways to motivate your staff, and, uh, I mean, it doesn't matter where they – I'm – Almost the only person who thinks this, but it doesn't matter if you have a law or policy. You need the money and the uh, accountability. 
Writing coach and trainer Cheryl Stevens, the author of Plain Language and Plain English, is with us this half hour. We're talking about Pierre Polyev's idea to enact a law enforcing uh, plain language or eliminating so-called bureaucraties from uh, official Canadian government uh, communication. And we've been talking about why a lot of this is already in place. In fact, all you really need is better training, more money and some commitment to it. And it can be done. Uh, So I guess that really is the solution here, uh, Cheryl Stevens, in terms of how it could be done without necessarily needing to put in a law, which sounds like it would just be more bureaucracy, which I don't think is really the answer here. No, I don't think so. In fact, all they'd have to say is tell the Auditor's General Office, it's now uh, your duty to check up every year, make sure they're using language that our uh, that our people can understand because that's what our communication policy requires and it can be done I just I'd like to tell you that Canada has been a world leader in p- developing and promoting plain language um, the plain language Association International which now has people in I think 55 countries started here and uh, and we also were the first to call it plain language because in other before that, wherever it was talked about, it was plain English. But obviously right. in Canada, we have two languages. And, and then there are countries in Europe who have other two languages. So uh, we've really been on the lead on this, and we've been doing this work for 30 years. Um, now, you wanted to know how training is done. And I tell you that when um, uh, people take a course at university or uh, college or anywhere, what they're learning, being taught, is Aristotle's rhetoric, you know? They're right. being told, think about who's going to read this, think about what your reason is, why you're bothering them with this information, and use that to sort out a message that speaks to them, and they will understand it. Um, so that's the best way to go about it. And it just with some people I coach, I, I re- look at their writing and, and talk to them, and all I say, well, all you need to do is stop before you put your pen to paper and think about these concerns. And it might only take them one minute, you know, just give their thought to seeing the reader in their mind while they're writing to that person. But the problem has been that with plain language and government efforts, especially in the U.S., they have like 33 laws in, in various states that required plain language in consumer documents, and it was a good effort to get something moving, but they measured it um, by grade level. And to measure whether uh, a document, a material, serves a particular grade level, they developed formulas using arithmetic. So uh, short words got more points and short sentences got more points. But you can produce gobbledygook. I mean, you can produce nonsense just using short words and short sentences and and nothing anybody can understand. So fortunately, um, in the last 30 years, there's been a lot of money going into brain research. And the reason it's been going there is because people with money in uh, artificial intelligence companies want to know how our brains read and think and write and then try to make the machines do it. So it's been fortunate for the rest of us that the lessons that have been learned from that brain research uh, can be applied in how we uh, write. And that's what my next book is going to be about, uh, how you write for the reader brain. There's a couple of people in Europe who've already done this, but only within the language of Danish or other. So this will be, this is new for English and French. I can tell you what those tips are. Yes, I only have a couple of minutes left, but please go ahead, by all means. Okay. 
So you, uh, there's a default uh, system that the brain expects from a sentence, and that is that it starts with a subject, with closely followed by the verb, and then finishes off with whatever else you want to say. But if you sort of, every time you write a sentence, you think, I've got to start with someone or something doing something, um, you're going to be a great, great ahead. And also with words, it doesn't matter whether they're Anglo-Saxon or they're short or whatever, it's are they familiar to your particular readers? And you can look that up on the Internet. You can Google 3,000 word list and find the most commonly used words. Um, And then the other thing is use every word to do work. Don't just blather on. Yes, indeed. Yes. Uh, yes. Those are all very, that's all very good advice. Cheryl Stevens, thank you so much for weighing in on this. I'm, uh, I did not know that we'd invented the term plain language. So you learn something new every single night on this show, which always uh, thrills me. So thanks so much for your time and uh, especially on a Friday night before a long weekend. Oh, you're welcome. Thanks. We're going to learn on Monday who the next British prime minister will be. The battle to replace Boris Johnson as head of the Conservative Party is down to two candidates current Foreign Secretary Liz Truss and former Chancellor of the Exchequer Rishi Sunak. In the end, it wasn't one thing, but a string of scandals in his government that brought down the flamboyant Boris Johnson. On reflection, he says... As we've seen uh, at Westminster, uh, the herd instinct is powerful. When the herd moves, it moves. And my friends, in politics, no one is remotely indispensable. Replacing him next week will be either the current Foreign Secretary or the former Treasury Secretary. Interestingly, both poll worse than the person they'll be replacing. Tom Rivers, ABC News, London. And with a majority in Parliament, the winner will take up residence at 10 Downing Street as the preferred choice, not of UK voters, but of roughly 160,000 members of the Conservative Party. The list of challenges, though, facing the next PM is almost unimaginable. An economy in deep trouble, with the Bank of England forecasting a lengthy recession, skyrocketing inflation. I don't know if you've been reading about this. Energy prices, uh, where average household bills are up by about 80% and could climb even more. Uh, And that issue was at the top of the agenda as those two hopefuls took part in the final leadership debate earlier this week in London. Liz Truss says she's not or she's ruling out any energy rationing this winter. Imagine energy rationing and is instead looking to increase supply. Because you're right, it's not just a problem for people. It's a problem for businesses with high energy costs. So I'll be looking across the board to make sure we're increasing supply and therefore dealing with the root cause of the issue rather than just putting a sticking plaster on. But I would absolutely be looking to act on business energy costs. Liz Truss. Uh, I don't know how she's going to increase supply. Everyone's going to be in need of energy this winter in Europe. Uh, While Sunak is defending a windfall tax on energy companies he brought in under Boris Johnson. Don't let the applause fool you, though. He is trailing Truss considerably in the polls. Uh, Here is Rishi Sunak. So I introduced a windfall tax as Chancellor, and I'm glad that I did, because it was the right thing to do. Uh, So, uh, and look, I... And I, look, I, I, don't, I don't actually know if, if Liz supports it or doesn't support it, but I think it is absolutely the right thing at a time when energy companies are making billions of pounds of profits. Uh, Rishi Sunak there, uh, trailing apparently in this two-horse race to become the next uh, Prime Minister of Great Britain. Other challenges include continued fallout over Brexit, including a battle with the European Union over Northern Ireland, and of course the war in Ukraine. Well, to sort this all out, someone who knows more about diplomacy than most people 
can forget. Uh, joining me now is veteran Canadian diplomat and Canada's former High Commissioner to the UK and Ambassador to Russia, Jeremy Kinsman, a distinguished fellow of the Canadian International Council. Thanks so much for your time tonight. Uh, hi, hi Ben. I, I've been watching Serena too. Uh, yeah, it's, indeed. It's been something. It was quite the three hours. Three hours. It was. It was, quite the it match. was heroic. I, I've been watching her seems like all my life, but uh, indeed, I watch a lot of tennis. I I remember being in Rome at the Italian Open about twenty years ago, twenty twenty three, twenty four years ago, and uh, Venus was uh, was number one at the time, and she was on center court. And somebody yelled down from the top. They yelled, Venus, marry me, marry me. <laughs> and she turned around and yelled back, you ought to meet my sister, Serena. And everybody looked at each other. Who's Serena? And I went over to the practice courts afterwards, and I saw her. She was 16 years old, and she yeah. was out there in the court. And who knew started. that this was going to happen, you know? On clay in Rome too, which which was always a bit more of a battle, right? For uh, for Serena. yeah, yeah. But, wow. Well, she she yeah. they, they, she did well on all surfaces. I just she certainly enormous did. ferocious power, you know. Yeah, is we've been privileged to watch her. I think that's what it all boils down to—a real privilege to watch. Certainly. The, you know, one of the, if not the greatest uh, player, one of the greatest tennis players of all time. Speaking of battles, uh, this has been a bit of an acrimonious one in Britain, hasn't it, between Liz Truss and Rishi Sunak, the old uh, cabinet partners? I guess it's acrimonious. Uh, she came sort of out of nowhere, you know, and she's been surfing on uh, her her statement of loyalty uh, to Boris Johnson. There is a a segment of the party, and it's probably bigger than one thinks. Uh, I think you mentioned in your introduction that uh, that Boris was still polling better than either of these rivals. That uh, it resentful of the fact that he was pushed out, and so she's she's pushing that, and she's she's putting some of the responsibility on on the uh, the chancellor, Rishi Sunak, uh, who bailed out, who quit uh, just uh, at the last uh, moments of. Uh, of Boris Johnson's premiership, I mean, uh, before he was uh, he was asked to leave, uh, as as sort of suggesting he was, uh, you know, he was stabbing him in the back. Uh, but you know, by this time, by this time, almost uh, most other people had left uh, Johnson, had abandoned him. So it did make it a, a little bitter. And I guess uh, Sunak, who's uh, sort of a golden boy, he's always done everything wonderfully, and and you know, he's been fabulously successful and business as a hedge fund manager he's married to a a billionaire's daughter uh you know he's a little bit surprised that she kind of seems to have blown him away as as a kind of born again populist and i might say born again born again born for the first time brexiteer because she she voted remain um and so he's a bit surprised by it yeah, uh, trust seems to have an incre- quite the ability to sort of figure out where where the, where the wind is blowing and then set her sail that way. It's been uh, it's been interesting to watch as it's gone on. This is not uh, Jeremy an enviable job right now. I mean, when we see the headlines about what's going on in Britain when it comes to inflation and energy prices, the economy. I mean, it's hard to put in words what exactly is happening. Uh, what's what is predicted to be happening, or to happen in the fall there and into the winter. Yeah, I think there are a lot of things that that have gone wrong. I mean, uh, you you mentioned inflation; it's running at just over ten percent. One year ago, right now, it was at three percent. 
So you just calculate what that 7% does for, you know, working families, for ordinary people. Uh, it's it's pretty steep. I mean, we're feeling it in Canada, something considerably less than that. Britain's not alone. I mean, in Spain, I think it's 11, and Netherlands, it's 13. The rest of Europe is lower. But it's a, it's, it's a tough hit. And, of course, there's a big debate and a lot of disagreement about where it's coming from. Obviously, as you said, energy is a major factor. Uh, and energy uh, costs have gone up in part because of uh, Ukraine and a lot of people on uh, in Britain are therefore, you know, blaming Putin for this. But uh, Brexit has a lot to do with it, too. It's driven up costs considerably. Uh, the, uh, the various offices, uh, the, the Office of, of Accounting Responsibility is indicating that, you know, Britain's Britain's GDP uh, is, is going to suffer a 4.5 percent hit over time outside of, of, of the European Union, uh, as opposed to what it would have had inside. And so there are a lot of, of pressures. I mean, Brexit is on. It's happening. Get Brexit done was Johnson's uh, popular slogan. At least it got him a, a great majority at the time, along with the extraordinary unpopularity of the labor leader then, Jeremy Corbyn. Uh, but it's, it's done. But, you know, it's still pretty toxic as a topic. And so, yes, she's walking in to a toxic situation. It's not it's not just the the landscape economically and politically. It's how people feel in Britain. You know, there's been a loss of confidence in the office itself. I mean, Boris, much as people love him because in some ways he's lovable, uh, did degrade the office. Uh, he, He had a strange relationship with truth. And uh, and eventually it, uh, it it you know turned people's heads and and the worst thing in politics is hypocrisy, and and what he did you know over you know so-called Partygate uh, was just you know kind of snub his nose at everybody who had been locked in uh, and he was having uh, these privileged parties. So uh, it is a, a very tough uh, entry point. And as you said, no one knows exactly what she stands for. She stands for winning uh, the nomination of the Conservative Party. But going from there to winning the confidence of the country is is a long way because this Conservative Party, those voting, are 0.3% of the population of the country. And their politics aren't exactly, you know, the same as, as, as the majority in the country. So she's got a big uphill climb. I guess there isn't a huge impact here, depending between the difference between Liz, Elizabeth May or Elizabeth, uh, not Elizabeth May, Theresa May, um, Boris Johnson, Liz Truss. It's sort of a continuum as far as Canada is concerned. Yeah, I, I think it is. I mean, um, that's right. Uh, we, we, you know, obviously have a a, a significant, substantial uh, relationship. Uh, you know, that's made up of real stuff that goes on between. Canadians and, and Brits, you know, uh, on the investment side, the business side and the human side, uh, there's so much, uh, you know, intermarriage of all kinds and uh, people going back and forth. And that that isn't going to be altered. You know, um, I think that, uh, you know, I'll be very frank with you, Ben. I, I think Britain, Britain is reduced uh, from mm-hmm. its time in the European Union. It's a paradox, isn't it, that uh, getting out and being on your own, you suddenly become smaller you'd think you'd become bigger but britain wielded enormous leverage and influence 
by being in many ways the most kind of influential country within that block of 350 million people. And now they're just another middle-sized country. Now, they had thought, they believed, and and those uh, very much in favor, uh, devout believers, that, you know, global Britain, Britain unleashed, Britain unchained, as they say, would, you know, make a huge mark in the world with a a kind of global outreach. But uh, the world's a competitive place. And, and Britain doesn't ring alone uh, a bell quite as loudly and strongly as it did, you know. I mean, it still does with Canada, but, uh, but you know, at the end of the day, uh, it's, it's a country that's uh, more or less like us. So um, it's, it's, it's got a tough road to hoe, but, but that's not why they did things. They did things so that they could, they thought, have, uh, have lives that... Uh, that better played to the identity issues in that country. We'll see how that works out. You know, I go yeah. there a lot and, uh, you know, walk in the Wiltshire Hills. Uh, it's still as beautiful oh, it's whether still they're beautiful, in Brexit yeah. or not in Brexit, you know? It's it's still so, a great place. I remember having a conversation once with uh, someone who was working for, uh, for David Cameron at the time, and he was talking about holding a referendum. I said, listen, I grew up yeah. in Quebec. I, I'd tell you, you know, he's going, he goes, listen, the Brexit side will never win, but we need to do it to keep everyone quiet, like we, as this was yeah. always the fight, the, the European fight in, in the Conservative Party. Um, sure. We need to do it. Um, so, and, and, you know, they'll lose. I'm like, don't, don't do it. Don't do it. Well, <laughs> sure we, enough, we all sure did enough. that, man. All, all yeah. we Canadians, in particular, I'm also from Montreal, lived through those things. Uh, we all said don't do it. It's the nuclear weapon of politics. You know, it, you never get over it. And uh, you can't control it. And uh, don't do it. But, uh, you know, as you say, he thought he could win. Unfortunately, he didn't, he didn't do it the way that winning would have required uh, no. because he, he couldn't bring himself to tell, tell the British, you know, that being in the European Union is actually a good thing. They'd gotten, as you said, so used to be, being sort of running against the European Union in Brussels that he couldn't make the positive case very well. Anyway, yeah. look, that's in the past. So it is in the past. In the future, yeah. one of the things that'll be interesting is that they're about to have another collision again, the UK and uh, and the EU over Northern Ireland. Uh, and yeah. I mean, may we see a hard border? I mean, I remember the hard border when it was there. Yeah. I was there in the 90s, I guess, in Belfast. I remember the hard border was still there. Sure. Uh, obviously, I went back afterwards and having it gone was great. Uh, may we see it return, do you think? I, I sure hope not. I think that your memories are those of... Uh, most people in Ireland. Uh, unfortunately, the uh, I don't want to put this in a sectarian way, but it is the, the Protestant movement in uh, Northern Ireland, which is becoming uh, demographically a minority. Uh, mm-hmm. And they're worried about that. And they're, they're very, very strongly uh, convinced they have to keep the maximum amount of ties uh, as a member of the, the, uh, the United Kingdom. Uh, in order to maintain their position in Ireland, because otherwise, otherwise the country, uh, the, the northern part, is eventually going to vote to join Ireland, uh, or join the republic itself. So, so it, it's it's emotional, but but uh, the good the Good Friday agreements that uh, Tony Blair brought in uh, back there at the end of the '80s, which eliminated that border, uh, you know, we're, we're we're so extraordinarily healthy for everybody. And, uh, and so there's a real reticence to see it go down, including curiously, and it's important, on the part of the United States because of the Irish uh, connection. 
and, uh, and they very strongly counseled the British not to screw around with the protocol that was negotiated uh, with the European Union to enable that border to to remain invisible. Uh, and uh, Liz Truss, unfortunately, is because she thinks it's popular with a conservative base, which is kind of connected to that uh, that that Protestant uh, uh, Ulster base. Uh, she thinks uh, that it's 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 good to say that uh, when she's in on day one, she's going to tear that protocol up. Highly irresponsible, I have to say. And if that's uh, an indication of the way she's going to be, then she's going to be in bigger trouble uh, than we uh, than we expect. And I only have a few minutes left, but we may see another. I mean, I don't think we are because I, I doubt Liz Truss is going to allow or or allow for a referendum in Scotland, another referendum in Scotland. But that's a whole other kettle of fish that the UK face in the next little while. So, you know, Nicola Sturgeon, no pun intended there, by the way, uh, agitating <laughs> again for another referendum. Yeah, well, you it, it, like your Sturg- Nicola Sturgeon's there. We just got rid of salmon, right? That's so, right. Uh, there are all sorts of puns. Uh, fish puns going on uh, look the scots the scots in the end are going to do what they're going to do and uh they're they're going to go for the identity solution uh they're going to be more compelled to do it if uh, there is a british prime minister who is playing the english identity card on her side uh, mm-hmm. strongly so she's going to have to be very careful uh that that movement in scotland is permanent it's real uh it can be co-opted uh within the union there is a kind of an English nationalism, you know, about that uh, emerged. It started actually with football and rugby, but it uh, now it's it's political, and uh, and it's 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 having its day. And you know, the English are overwhelmingly uh, the biggest part of, of the UK, and uh, and so it's it's going to burn out, I guess, or not. And if it doesn't, then the Scottish identity thing will will definitely uh, have its run as well. Jeremy Kinsman, thank you so much for your insight on all this. Fascinating to talk about so many things British tonight. I appreciate it. Uh, Okay, good to talk to you, Ben.